we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pretty recognizable words, right? I think we can all say it. It's not the Constitution. Uh, the Declaration of Independence, right? Thomas Jefferson wrote down these words, declaring independence from Britain, and they were intended to kind of be a rallying cry, kind of the basis of our nation, right? Well, Austrian uh, psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl has a problem with this statement. Not the whole statement, really just, really just the end of it, uh, the pursuit of happiness part. Uh, Frankl calls that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, he calls it a contradiction in terms. A contradiction in terms, meaning that you can't do that. You cannot pursue happiness. It is a byproduct, he would say, a byproduct of a dedication to a task, a cause greater than yourself or someone other than yourself. Now, Frankl doesn't say this strictly from some uh, scientific perspective, like devoid of any type of emotion or experience or true feelings or anything like that. Actually, Viktor Frankl, uh, who died back in 1997 at the age of 92, he experienced perhaps the epitome of unhappiness. He experienced perhaps the epitome of suffering. He survived the Holocaust. And within the year following his release from German concentration camps, he wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning in which he recounts um, the day-to-day -day life of living in a concentration camp and all the while exploring that idea of the meaning of life. But we live in a nation that is founded on this right that we all have to pursue happiness. Despite the fact that our country was founded on the right to be happy, according to several research centers and studies, we are the most unhappy we have ever been as a country despite the fact that we're the wealthiest we've ever been, despite the fact that we have the most free time we've ever had, and despite the fact that we have an international day of happiness, we are still a group of very sad people in America. Why is that? Why are we so sad as a nation? Well, Frankel would argue it's because we have dedicated our time and energy to pursuing happiness. We're obsessed with being happy. We do everything we can to make sure that our lives and other people's lives are happy. Frankel would say it's because we have done this rather than dedicating ourselves to a meaningful task, a cause greater than ourselves, and someone other than ourselves. You know, I, I don't disagree with what Frankel is saying. In fact, I, I strongly recommend his book, Man's Search for meaning. However, the conclusions he reaches are strikingly similar to the conclusions of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and I believe, I believe in part, part of what Ecclesiastes is trying to communicate to us is that contentment is better than happiness. Contentment is better than happiness. I want to explore this idea this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll get there in just a minute. The teacher as he's called in Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, perhaps your, your version says, 
The teacher uses his famous phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, right? We're familiar with that. Uh, people of the world are familiar with that. I've listened to some musicians who decide to throw that into their songs, not really knowing what they're saying. But eat, drink, and be merry. That's something that actually appears throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, or at least something similar to it. Um, it's his conclusion throughout the book as he conducts his own his own experiment to find meaning in life, to find satisfaction in life. Eight different times the teacher uh, uses this phrase or makes reference to this idea. And in each time, and each time it's in the context of discussing uh, some of the most universal struggles we have in life. Some of the most difficult things that we struggle with, like man's desire to be happy, like suffering and death. And like that existential crisis that follows, well, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of all of this? And we'll discuss that this morning. But before we get into that, before we go any further, there are some truths that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes assumes you already uh, accept. Uh, he kind of goes on with little explanation of it. Uh, he doesn't try and, and, and argue these points at all because he accepts or he assumes that you already accept these things. But they are pretty crucial to understanding what it is that he is arguing, the conclusions that he reaches. And all of those truths, the three that I'll mention, are found in Genesis 1 through 3. The first truth uh, established right from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is creator. The writer of Ecclesiastes assumes that you already believe that, that God is creator. And not only that, that he is the creator of good things. That all things he has created is good. And then all things that he has created for you is good. That he has given to you is good. Now, there's a subtle distinction between that, but I think a pretty important one. All things that God has given us is good. That might mean some things that we don't necessarily think are good are, in fact, good for us. That's the first truth. The second one, also found in Genesis 1 and 2, is kind of a two-parter. Uh, the first part of it being that man is dependent. That God created man as, as dependent. Uh, or in the need of others in order to live, or, or at least live meaningfully. That God created us in that way. Genesis 2 and verse 18, God observes that it is not good for man to be alone. So unlike what, what Paul Simon stubbornly writes, man is not a rock. Man is not an island. Because we most certainly do feel pain. We most certainly do cry. And most often we do those things when our needs as dependent creatures are not met. Man is dependent. But consequently, and but also specifically laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, man is also responsible. Man has obligations. Man was created with obligations. Man was given a task right from the beginning to work. Work is not a curse. That's brought up in Genesis 3. Man was given the task to work, and God actually calls this a blessing, this responsibility, this, uh, this uh, task that man is supposed to exercise dominion and lovingly rule over the rest of God's creation. God gave that to us, and it is called a blessing. And then mentioned again in Genesis 2, man is given the blessing of cultivating and keeping the garden which God had given him. Man is told to be a helper to his fellow man, to bring about blessings for other people. We were created as dependent on others, but also obligated towards others. The writer assumes that you accept that. The writer assumes that you believe that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And then uh, the, uh, the last thing 
particularly found in Genesis 3, it is that our own pursuits uh, in life have brought about difficulties and hardships. Now, that doesn't explain every difficulty and hardship. He doesn't connect all of our sufferings to something that, that we have contributed to. Don't misunderstand me. But the, the teacher does at least recognize throughout the book man's contribution to, the, to the, the terribleness that is in the world. And he assumes that you accept that and believe that as well. Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. With those truths established... Let us consider life's universal struggles. All right. We're going to consider the struggles in life, our desire for happiness, suffering and death, and our search for meaning. But we're also going to consider the conclusions that the teacher recognizes, which is eat, drink, and be merry. Man is desperate for happiness. We are constantly looking for happiness, and the teacher is no different. In Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2, he makes these observations. Uh, He conducts an experiment of sorts. He pursues different things in life that might bring about happiness. You can start in verse 13 of chapter 1. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. It goes all the way down uh, to chapter 2 and in verse 3. The teacher is pursuing uh, wisdom. He's pursuing pleasure, laughter, and folly. But look at his conclusion in chapter 2 and in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says that it's madness. This is madness. He says in verse 2, what does it accomplish? He's pursued all of these different things, and his conclusion is, what does it accomplish? If you look earlier in the book, in chapter 1, the teacher observes the world, and in verse 8, he recognizes just how wearisome the world is. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear satisfied with hearing. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 8. And then similar to that, he says, like this this river, this river in verse 7, that just keeps wanting more and more. That's what his pursuit of happiness was. That's what his desire for happiness was. Everything that he found, all of this wisdom, pleasure, laughter, and folly, it just kept wanting more. The eye was never satisfied. The ear was never satisfied. It kept wanting more. So what did these pursuits give him? He concludes nothing except just some fleeting illusion of of happiness. But, But still the scientist, he continues this pursuit. He turns his attention now to wealth. He looks at wealth for happiness. Wealth manifested in, in just beauty. Things that look, that are, are appealing to the eyes. Gardens and ponds he, he, he makes for himself. Wealth in the sense of sustenance. Things that we all need. Food. He has fruit trees. Vineyards. Uh, slaves to work those vineyards. He has all of these things. But then wealth and just pure decadence. He's got silver and gold. Singers and concubines. All of these things. And it says in verse 10 that he did all of this. He said, all that my eyes desired I did not refuse. It's not like you could argue, well, if you'd just taken that a little further, then you would have found happiness. No, 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 no. He went as far as his eye could see. But what did he conclude back in chapter 1? But the eye kept wanting more. The ear kept wanting more. There was no end to this. And his conclusion in verse 11 is that all was vanity, futility. Some versions say meaningless. I think it's more this idea of, I don't get it. It's not working. Why doesn't this satisfy? And furthermore, he he continues in chapter 2. He observes that once he's done collecting all of these things, once he's built up this great wealth and he dies, he passes down his wealth to some punk kid who didn't earn it, some kid who doesn't deserve it, some kid who doesn't recognize how great it is. 
and eventually they forget about them. And so his conclusion in verse 17 is, I hated life. As I started considering all these things, I hate life. Everything is futility and striving after the wind. He makes another observation. Go to chapter 5. Another observation is that man collects wealth and he hoards that wealth for some sense of satisfaction. But he says in verse 13 that he does it to their own hurt. As they pursue happiness and satisfaction by hoarding their wealth, they're doing it really to their own hurt. And then through happenstance, really no fault of their own, they lose all that money. It doesn't say that he did it because he was dumb with his money or didn't do something smart. No, it's just something happened and he lost all of that money. And then he didn't even have the money to pass down to his children or anything like that. And because of this, look at verse 17. He says, because of this, his life was filled with great vexation, sickness, and anger. So what did these pursuits accomplish for him? Not much. But he's able to reach a conclusion. Go back to chapter 2. As the teacher reflects on all of these pursuits in life, he says that the best thing someone can do, verse 24, eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Chapter 2 and verse 24. The goal wasn't necessarily finding happiness in eating or in drinking or laboring, but it's in the dedication to a labor that is good. You dedicate yourself to something that is good and then you can eat and drink and tell yourself that your labor is good. And perhaps most significantly through the knowledge that the food and the drink and the labor is given to you by God. It says in verse 25, for who can eat and have enjoyment without him? Recognizing that these things, however little or however, however much, are given to us by God. Again, keep in mind those truths that we established in Genesis 1 and 2. God is the creator of good. These things that we have in life are given to us by God, but also that man is dependent and obligated. We have obligations. We have things we have to do. We have labor that we must do, and that is good. That is given to us by God. Viktor Frankl says that pleasure is and must remain a side effect or byproduct and is destroyed or spoiled to the degree to which it is made a goal in itself. The more we make some thought of happiness our absolute goal, the further and further away it's actually going to get. So the conclusion of the writer is eat and drink and tell yourself that your labor is good, for it is a gift from God. Then in chapter 5, he reaches the same conclusion. Rather than, rather than hoarding these riches that we have or grabbing onto them as some sort of life preserver, he says, eat, drink, and enjoy oneself, verse 18. Eat, drink, and enjoy oneself during the few years which God has given him. In fact, God has given you these things for the purpose of enjoying them. That's why you have them, to, to enjoy these great blessings that we have. The teacher calls them in verse 19, a gift from God. And when we have this perspective, when we have this perspective on truly valuing the things that we have as gifts from God, 
However little or however much that might be, when we have that perspective, then we become less occupied with the years of life. That's what he says in verse 20. We become less occupied with the years of life. I think what he's referring to there is is the, the, the difficulties in life. We become less occupied with those difficulties, but more occupied with the gladness of heart. I love that phrase. Become more occupied with the gladness of heart. That's contentment. Within our hearts, we are occupied with the, great, with the good things that God has given us. That suggests that we are giving thanks to Him constantly for the things that we have. We are occupied with that gladness of heart. Happiness is a byproduct of our dedication to obligations that we have. We're not going to find happiness in our jobs, whatever that job is, unless, unless we see them as a blessing from God. Every job that we do, we must see them as a blessing from God, and we must forget ourselves as we do them. That's what Frankel would say. We must forget ourselves, or better yet, we must deny ourselves. That's how Jesus would put it. Deny ourselves as we do these things. As we labor within the church, as we labor within our jobs, as we labor within our homes, we consider these things a blessing from God, and we deny ourselves, giving ourselves over to them. And the same would go for our relationships, be that boyfriend, girlfriend, be that husband, wife, be that friends, be that uh, child and and parent, whatever that relationship might be. We're not going to find happiness in that relationship unless we recognize that it is a gift from God. And we deny ourselves as we dedicate our time and attention to it, because when we do this, We can truly enjoy the byproduct, knowing that we have fulfilled our God-given obligation. That is contentment. The other difficulty in life that the teacher explores is the thought of death and suffering. He spends a good amount of time throughout the book discussing these things. Death is the great equalizer, as many people have said. But the uh, the teacher clarifies that thought a little bit in a few in a few places. Look at Ecclesiastes 3. If you look at uh, towards the end of Ecclesiastes 3, it says that death really makes us equal to all of God's creation. The teacher observes that we are no different than the beasts. No different than them. Man doesn't have any advantage for both die and return to the dust. Verses 18 through 20. Both man and beast die. And so in that case, we are equal. Then go over to chapter 9. He explores the same idea. Teacher also observes that there is no distinction between the righteous or wicked, for they both die. Look at verse 2. It says, There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. And as he continues, he calls that one fate a great evil under the sun. Verse 3. The fact that both the righteous and the wicked die. And then... Perhaps an an even more difficult observation is not only do both die, but both suffer. Go to chapter 8. Go back to chapter 8. Both the righteous and wicked suffer as as they live, but suggest that the righteous suffer even more. Look at verse verse 18. Excuse me, verse 14. Excuse me. It says, there are righteous men whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And on the other hand, there are evil men whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This, too, is futility. 
I think what he's saying there is there are righteous men who suffer because of the wicked deeds of the wicked. And then there are wicked men who prosper because of the good deeds of the righteous. This doesn't make sense. Why is it this way? So as he explores the ideas of death and suffering, let's look back at the conclusions that he draws. Go back to Ecclesiastes 3. Again, he was considering death in Ecclesiastes 3. And even with this heavy topic of death, the teacher brings us to a familiar conclusion. That man should, verse 22, be happy in his activities. Rejoice in his labor. Again, he connects happiness to the labor, to the work that we ought to be doing. Chapter 9, he elaborates on this as well. Uh, Verses 7 through 10, the teacher reflects again on death, but he reaches that same refrain. Verse 7, eat your bread, drink your wine, for God has approved your work. It's the same conclusion. But then he takes it even further. He says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love. Enjoy these blessings from God, um, uh, which he has given to you, for this is your reward. So as we consider the crisis that is death, what the, what the teacher suggests is we, we account for the blessings that God has given us. Work being one of them. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So while we are living, while we are living, we ought to enjoy the blessings that we have, and work being one of them, and dedicate our time and attention to it. And then in chapter 8, as the teacher considers suffering, it's interesting, without a detailed explanation as to why, he concludes in verse 12 that it's still better for those who fear God. Look at verse 12. Chapter 8 and verse 12. He says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. He doesn't go into explanation as to why that is the case, but he accepts that it is. It is better for those who fear him. And then he reaches the same conclusion. Verse 15, in the days of life that God has given, look at verse 15. It says, eat, drink, and be merry. This will stand by him in his toils. Same conclusion. A certain contentment that might come with the death and suffering that we all experience. Consider what God has blessed us with and rejoice in that. But then if you keep reading verses 16 and 17, it gets a little bit more challenging. He reflects, I think, I think on the question of, well, why does suffering happen? He's not totally content with with what he's suggesting to you. He goes to verse 16, and, uh, uh, reflecting on this idea of wisdom, that he's searching for wisdom. I think in the context, he's talking, he's begging the question of, well, why does suffering happen? In verse 16, even though one should never sleep day or night in pursuit of these answers, he says, man cannot discover the work. Um, there's a book, there's a book called uh, A Grace Disguised written by a man uh, by the name of Jerry Sitzer. And in that book, he reflects on, on years that followed a great suffering in his life. Um, in one moment, he lost his mother, his wife, and two of his kids um, in an accident with a drunk driver. And in this book, 
he makes several observations, but one of them being, in one particular chapter, he takes note of, of the orderliness of, of nature. That nature always follows the same pattern. Ecclesiastes 1 talks through that, right? It always kind of does the same thing. There's a certain predictability to it, but then he observes that there's a certain unpredictability to it as well, right? A tornado ravages a neighborhood. That's predictable. That's what tornadoes do. But then, after it's all done, you see one house just totally unscathed. One house that somehow escapes the wrath of this tornado. That is unpredictable. He starts talking about things that we suffer in life. There's certain things that we suffer through that are, well, they're kind of predictable. They're understandable, right? Lung cancer or, or, or disease after years and years of chain smoking. That doesn't surprise us, right? Um, a house built in a floodplain that experiences water damage. That doesn't surprise us. A rebellious child who grows up to be a rebellious adult uh, growing up in a house with no rules or anything like that. That doesn't surprise us. At the same time, though, and you're probably thinking in your own head, there are some counterexamples, though. My, my grandfather, my grandfather died of lung cancer. He never smoked in his life. Meanwhile, other people in my family have been smoking 40 plus years and they have perfectly healthy lungs, it seems. Y'all know of people who have grown up in great houses. Parents who taught their children to fear the Lord, raised them up well, and yet they are rebellious and go off the deep end, go somewhere else where their parents never taught them. And then there's other people who grow up in terrible houses, and yet they are well-adjusted, faithful adults. We understand that there are counterexamples to this. Sitzer writes, he says, Suffering may be at its fiercest when it is random. For we are then stripped of even the cold comfort that comes when, uh, when events, however cruel, occur for a reason. We tremble when there is no satisfactory explanation, no sensible pattern. Sitzer talks about replaying that accident over and over in his head. And perhaps some of you who have suffered greatly in life have experienced similar things. Or you keep going back to that event and you keep saying, well, what if this happened? He talks about, well, what if I just took a little bit longer putting my child in the car seat? Or, or, or what, if I, what if I had lingered a little longer at that traffic light? Then, then I would have avoided this whole situation. He talks about being crippled by that thought, not being able to move past it. But then he says, is this the type of control that we want in our lives? Knowledge of what is to come in order to circumvent life's tragedies. The teacher in Ecclesiastes reflects on his own wealth of knowledge, his own wealth of wisdom, and he concludes in verse 18 of chapter 1, in much wisdom there is much grief. And an increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. There is no telling what suffering awaits us if we avoid one. There is also no telling the amount of blessing that has come from one. So the best thing we can do is, as the teacher would suggest, to eat, to drink, and be merry, knowing that God is the source of life, and knowing that the God is, is the source of all good things in our lives. Sitzer talks about finding comfort in the stories of Job and Joseph. Now, Job is a difficult book. It might not be obvious to find comfort in the book of Job, but he talks about it. He says that Job suffered greatly, right? 
Um, And to Job, all of his suffering appeared to be random. There's no explanation given to him. And after some time, Job's friends, I think, uh, kind of discontent with the lack of explanation, they decide just to go ahead and give their own explanation as to the randomness of his sufferings, try to give some sort of reasonable explanation to what's going on. I'll say as an aside, don't do that. Don't try and explain away other people's seemingly random sufferings through things that you don't know with answers that you're not confident in. It is okay to not know why things are happening. And that's uncomfortable for all of us. But Job knows that his friends are wrong. Job too, though, begins to spout off some unreasonable things, which is kind of understandable considering the amount of suffering he's going through. But then towards the end, God speaks. And when God speaks, he gives Job a peek into his inscrutable ways. He gives Job a peek into the things that he does not understand. And at the end of the book, it's Job apologizing to God. In his conclusion, in in chapter 42 and verse 4, he says, Job says to God, I will ask you. And you instruct me. There is a spiritual realm. Uh, There are heavenly places that the Bible talks about but doesn't give a lot of detail to. Only enough to know that it exists and that it's active. But we don't fully know the measure to which these heavenly places are at work. There's so many things in this life that we don't know. And even if we did, we wouldn't understand. And that can be especially frustrating when we are suffering through severe pain. But we serve a God that is aware of our pain and a God that has provided the ultimate solution to that pain, as Jerry Bailey pointed out at the table this morning. If we choose to endure like the Son did. So let us be like Job. Let us stay near to God. Let us ask Him and allow Him to instruct us. But Jerry Sitzer also talks about taking comfort in the story of Joseph. Joseph is a victim of the sins of others. The tragedies in his life are tied back to the, uh, the, the, the acts of wicked men. That's what Ecclesiastes 8 talks about. Every time he gets up, he's only knocked down again. But in every difficulty, the text says that God was with Joseph. And by the end of his life, Joseph is able to say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now we can debate as to how much Joseph actually knew what was going on. How much he knew that God was a part of this plan. But regardless of it, God had a purpose in Joseph's suffering. Joseph had free will to question it, which I'm sure he did at times. Joseph also had free will to just totally throw in the towel and give up, which I'm going to guess he was tempted to do at times. However, what we see Joseph doing is he chose to see the good in his life. He chose to work with all his might, whatever that lot was. He chose to do the next right thing in every situation. And he trusts in God's purpose. Sitzer writes that he recognizes, in connection with Joseph, that he recognizes in the unfolding of his life that God is good in ways he could not see earlier. God is good in so many ways that we do not see and we do not understand. So let us ask Him 
and let him instruct us. The third problem. If we don't find answers to our desire for happiness or the meaning of death and suffering, it leads us to ask the question, well, what is going on? What is the meaning of all of this? And the writer, the teacher talks about this in chapter 3. In Ecclesiastes 3, we get that famous uh, poem, verses 2 through 7. I remember this poem actually being in the poetry section of my high school literature textbook. And the commentators talked about it as some uh, bright and, and joyful poem. I don't, I don't think that's what the teacher is communicating. There's a time for this, there's a time for that. The teacher doesn't see that as much of a positive. He observes the world as this cyclical, monotonous thing, where one thing is born, another dies. Where one laughs, another cries. Where one loves, another hates. Where a flower blooms, another wilts. Essentially, nothing lasts. Everything is temporal. He asks the question of verse 9, what profit is there? As he observes the world and how it gives and takes, gives and takes, what's the point? What profit is there in all of this? Why give ourselves over to something that is temporal? Even though it points out in verse 11 that we have this strong desire for something that is eternal. And yet all we're given are these temporal things that constantly waste away and go away. Nothing lasts. All we get are cheap imitations that eventually don't last. And then in chapter 12, he considers the same thought, things not lasting. In chapter 12, verses 2 through 7, he talks about how our bodies slowly fade away. Every faculty, the, uh, the eyes, the ears, the joints, in a poetic fashion, he talks through all of these things that eventually waste away becomes less and less useful every day. And he says this too is vanity. Vanity of vanities. That's actually the last words of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. So, if everything fades away, the things that make us happy and our lives, what is the point? What is the meaning of life? Well, again, he reaches a familiar conclusion. Go back to chapter 3. In verses 12 through 14, verse 12 he says, Rejoice and do good. Every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift from God. So as we consider how things in this life do not last, what we do consider are the things that we have right now. And we see them as good. We recognize them as a blessing from God. And in verse 14, he points out that the eternity that we crave, the desire for something that lasts, for something that, that is of true value, he says it can only be given to us by God. We're not going to find it in anything apart from him. And what has God given us? Is, is, is it the eating and the drinking that is eternal? No, I think... I think a part of it is the contentment within these things. These are the things that last. Contentment can last. Because contentment cannot be taken from us. Contentment is something that we can choose to be or, or choose to think, choose to live, no matter the circumstances. That is given by God and, God, and, and cannot be added or taken away from. And then in chapter 12, 
with this cyclical view of the world and how our bodies, too, are wa uh, wasting away. In this section, he actually opens with the conclusion. And then what we read before, uh, it kind of comes at the end there. Look back at chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 9, his conclusion is familiar. He says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Follow the impulses of your heart. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment. So as we consider what life gives us, we enjoy it. We enjoy the things that we have. But we do it with an understanding that God is the judge. And that God will judge. We do it in a godly way with contentment. Driving us to contentment is God, who is our creator, as it says in verse 1, or chapter 12 and verse 1. The creator of all things that are good. He is the final judge. He is the one who's going to set right this world. He's going to make this world right, just like he did back from the beginning in Genesis 1. So he should be feared. And the question is, though, do we trust God? Do we trust that God is good and has given us good things amidst a world of evil and suffering and struggle? That's what the teacher seems to be wrestling with, and he invites the reader to wrestle with them. But by the time he records all of this teaching, the summary that you get at the end, so he can conclude that God is good. And so the best thing we can do is fear God and keep his commandments. I want to end um, this morning by looking at the first teachings of Jesus in his ministry, at least as it's recorded in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. I'll have it on the screen, but you can open to it. Matthew chapter 5. We commonly refer to this section of Scripture as, as uh, the Beatitudes. It describes the people that are blessed. Some versions say happy, right? Describes the people that are blessed, but by worldly measures, as he describes these people, they are far from blessed. Look at verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How is it that the one who is mourning is blessed? How is it that the one who is taken advantage of in so many different ways as this text describes, how is it that he is blessed. How is it the one who is persecuted is blessed or happy? Well, there's a sense in which the blessed man is blessed because he has chosen to be blessed. Ultimately, being blessed is, a, is given to us by God and fulfilled uh, through His promise. And I'll have more to say on that in a minute. But there is a sense in which the blessed man is so because he has chosen it. Um, Victor Frankl contemplates 
whether, whether the horrors of camp life uh, forced people to behave in particular ways, the circumstances, do they determine people's behavior? But he realizes that no amount of suffering can take away one's ability to choose. He writes, does man have no choice of action in the face of such circumstances? Those circumstances being the terribleness that is these concentration camps. He says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. In concentration camps, in this living laboratory, on this testing ground, we watched and witnessed some of our comrades behave like swine, while others behave like saints. Man has both potentialities within himself. Which one is actualized depends on decisions, but not on conditions. Our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer on his lips. It is this spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. The blessed man chooses this way of living because it is his task. It is his God-given obligation. From the beginning, man was created to be a blessing to others, and that only happens if we choose to do it. And when we choose that, there is a certain contentment that comes with that behavior. The blessed man chooses this despite any worldly troubles that it may bring. And because he has dedicated dedicated himself to a task outside of himself, he can be blessed. He can be content with whatever comes his way. But ultimately, and foremost of all, the blessed man is so because God has given him blessings. God has given him eternal blessings. Remember, that's what we long for. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. Eternity is in our hearts. We have this idea that there is something beyond us. There is something that lasts, and God is the one who has given it. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. God has an eternal home for us. God has provided us an eternal home where we will be members of an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. And in that kingdom, we will find comfort that exceeds any type of comfort that the world tries to offer. We will be given an inheritance that is imperishable. That's how Peter describes it, 1 Peter 1 and verse 5. This imperishable inheritance that comes through Jesus. We will find lasting satisfaction. Not these fleeting forms of it that we see that we see in the world that the that the teacher tried to find desperately. No, what we find is a lasting satisfaction. What we find is mercy, mercy to an extent that no one else in this world can provide. And ultimately, we will see God, 
and we will be his children forever. That is the blessing that God provides. That is why a people so struck down by this world, a people who have suffered more than others can understand, can truly be blessed. But as we await that eternal blessing, in the meantime, let us fear God and keep His commandments. In the meantime, let us give thanks to God for the blessings that we have. Let us eat and drink and tell ourselves that our labor is good, for who can eat and have enjoyment without Him? Let us choose contentment. Let us deny ourselves. Dedicate ourselves to a task, a cause greater than ourselves, a cause like the gospel of Christ. Let us dedicate ourselves to that. Let us dedicate ourselves to people other than ourselves. And perhaps in this, perhaps in this we will have gladness of heart. Perhaps in this we will find the contentment that we search for. If you are not a Christian, I hope you are discontent. I hope there is something within you that is stirring up, that is causing you to want to commit yourself to someone who can truly offer contentment. Someone who can truly answer life's most difficult questions. Give yourself to Jesus. Deny yourself and allow Him to cleanse you. If you would like to be baptized, if you want the forgiveness of sins that comes through submitting yourself to Him, that comes through the waters of baptism, I invite you to come up now while we stand and while we sing.